Podcastle episode 191 for January 10th, 2012, Balfour and Merriweather and the Vampire of Kabul by Daniel Abraham. Rated R for violence. Hello and welcome back to Podcastle. I'm Dave Thompson, your co-host and co-editor. What is it about the company and comfort of old friends? The kind that you don't necessarily see every day, but when you do, you just click back together into a familiar rapport. Well, we've got a pair of old friends returning in today's story. We reprinted the first adventure of Balfour and Merriweather almost exactly one year ago. And so, because nothing says comfort like defending the overreaching arms or heart of an empire, it gives us great pleasure to bring back Balfour and Merriweather and the Vampire of Kabul by Daniel Abraham, originally published at Subterranean Online. We'll link to the text in our show notes so you can read along if you'd like. Daniel Abraham is no stranger here to Podcastle. Aside from his prior Balfour and Merriweather story, He's been here three times with the Curandero and the Swede, the Cambist and Lord Iron, and writing as MLN Hanover, Hurt Me. And we've got another one coming from him later on in the year. His book, The Dragon's Path, was the first spotlight Anna and I featured. Mr. Abraham's work has been nominated for the Hugo, Nebula, and World Fantasy Awards, and he's won the International Horror Guild Award. He also writes science fiction with Ty Frank under the pen name James S.A. Corey. You can grab their awesome space opera novel, Leviathan Wakes, which is out now, and find both of them online at danielabraham.com. When we asked Daniel about this story, he told us, Steampunk to me is a reclaiming of colonialist adventure stories in a post-colonial era. One of the things the steampunk exercise points out is what has changed and what hasn't, which is interesting because despite calling the last Balfour and Merriweather tale steampunk, I personally hadn't thought of this story as steampunk, so I asked him to elaborate more on that and he said, Steampunk has been identified with the fashions associated with it, but when I look back at stories like The Difference Engine, what defines the subgenre isn't the gears and levers, it's the impulse to reframe contemporary issues and ideas in an imagined 1880s, just the way epic fantasy reaches back to an imaginary 1300s. Vampire of Kabul may not have any steam engines, but its adventure and daring do hopefully stir up echoes of our present age and a lot of the decades in between. Taking this duo back to the cobblestone streets of London again is none other than that fabled mystic, spiritualist, and man of action, the one and only Paul S. Jenkins. Paul runs a skeptical podcast, Skeptical, in addition to his skeptical blog, Notes from an Evil Bernie. Those are at their .co.uk domains, respectively. And you can listen to his novel, The Plutone Revisionist, available at plutone.com and Patio Books. So don your bowler hats, dust off that brace of knives, and enjoy the story. Balfour and Merriweather in The Vampire of Kabul by Daniel Abraham As I have grown old, I have watched the world of my youth fade with me. The damage done by the Great War will never be calculated, and yet, even now, I hear from my friends in the circles of power, in truth, most are now the children of my friends, that a third war in Afghanistan is all but certain. Even more than the war on the continent just passed, I find myself in dread of this new conflict and the powers it may provoke. And yet, also, I feel the nostalgia of old hunts, old games, old enemies now lost to history, and feel again not the rush of conflict, but its echo, and recall the unparalleled eyes of a most singular woman I once knew. From the Last Notebooks of Mr. Merriweather, 1919 Chapter 1. The Two Empresses It was the 3rd of December in 1880, and snow swirled down grey and damp upon the cobblestones of London. Merriweather paced before the wide window of the King Street flat impatiently. Balfour sat before the roaring fire, correcting a draft monograph he had written on the subject of Asiatic hand combat, as adapted to the English frame. "'I cannot understand how you can be so devilishly placid,' Merriweather said at last. "'Practice,' Balfour grunted. "'Every winter it's the same,' Merriweather said gesturing at the falling snow. 
The darkness comes earlier, the cold drives men from the roads, and I have this stirring, this unutterable restlessness. The winter traps me, my friend. It holds me captive. Balfour stroked his wide moustache. His bear-like grunt could have passed for agreement or mere acknowledgement. Merriweather turned away from street and snow, pushing pale hair back from his brow. If only something could break this, this malaise. Balfour glanced up in time to see the figure, slight, clad in dark leather and swinging from a near-invisible tether, just before it shattered the windows. Shards of glass and wide, wet snowflakes accompanied the figure as it rolled across the carpeted floor. With a shout equal parts alarm and delight, Merriweather dove for his paired service revolvers. Balfour leapt from his chair, drawing blades from the sheaths concealed by his dressing-gown sleeves, only to find the mouth of a huge handgun pressed firmly to the bridge of his nose. The leather-clad figure met his gaze, brown eyes flecked with gold. Her lips were the soft red of rose petals, and her smile sensual and touched by madness. The scent of clove perfume filled the air like a memory. Maria Fyodorovna. Tsarina, Merriweather said, pulling back the hammers of his revolvers with an ominous doubled click. I'll ask you to stand away from Mr. Balfour, if you please. The Empress Consort of Russia lifted her fine plucked eyebrows. When she spoke, her voice betrayed nothing of the physical effort she had just expended. My good Mr. Merriweather, I'll ask you to note that I have already depressed the trigger of my weapon. Ah, Merriweather said sourly. A dead man's switch, is it? Indeed. Fire upon me, and you author your good friend's death. Cheap at the price, Balfour grunted. Shoot her. Merriweather uncocked his weapons, stepping over the remnants of his windows to lean out, squinting up through the grey snowflakes toward the low white sky. The Serena's weapon didn't waver. Fastened a silken cord to the roof and then launched yourself out, he said. You took something of a risk. London's architecture is not always so solid as it might seem. I had to approach you with very little warning, she said. Had I simply announced myself, I think my reception might not have been so cordial, yes? After Cyprus, I think an assumption of violence would have been appropriate, Merriweather said. And yet I cannot help notice you haven't yet killed us, nor we you. It isn't a turn of events I would have foreseen, and I take it you have some specific intention in engineering it. I do, the Tsarina said but I would require your word of honour that you would respect our truce. Truce? Balfour asked. We face a common enemy, she said. Until he is defeated, I suggest we make common cause. Balfour's face reddened and his bright eyes bulged. I'd sooner make common cause with malaria. The Tsarina made a small disappointed sound with her tongue and teeth. This is where all things end, then, she said, and brought up her free hand to steady the pistol. What manner of common enemy? Merriweather asked. Her smile broadened by a fraction of an inch. Truce? she asked. Truce, Merriweather said. Word of honour? Of course. She nodded to Balfour. Do you agree as well, my old friend? Balfour chuffed under his breath, stepped back and truculently sheathed his knives. A gust of winter wind brought snow into the room. The fire hissed in complaint. Good enough, then, the Tsarina said working a small mechanism on her pistol, before returning it to the holster at her hip. Seven weeks ago, my husband was assaulted in his rooms. I was not present at the time, but the woman who impersonates me during my absences reports that immediately before, there was an ectoplasmic darkness that formed in the corners of the room and which no light could dispel, followed by a terrible apparition in the shape of a man with bright red eyes and skin the colour of snow. Her memory of the event itself is clouded, we know that my husband survived, that he was for some days afterward quite weak and anemic in appearance. And furthermore, furthermore I have reason to believe that his mind is no longer entirely subject to his will. For a moment snow-muffled hoofbeats and the wet bubbling of the gaslight were the only sounds. Are you saying that the Emperor of Russia has gone mad? Merriweather asked, leaning against the ruined window frame. Worse, she said, he is being compelled by an outside force. A being of spiritual darkness has struck at the heart of my empire, and what researches I have managed tell me that it also has designs upon yours. The interior door burst open, and a harried-looking Mrs. Long stepped in, barely ahead of Lord Carmichael. "'Come quick, boys! The Queen's been attacked!' Lord Carmichael said, even before Mrs. Long could announce him. 
and then, taking in the chaos of glass and ice before him, what in the world's going on? And what is she doing here? Merriweather scooped up his signature black greatcoat as Balfour reached for his brace of knives. The Tsarina bowed slightly to Lord Carmichael, her disconcerting eyes fixed upon his. She appears to be helping us, unlikely as that seems, Merriweather said. Mrs. Long, I apologise again for the inconvenience, but if you could please... I'll send a boy to the glazier right away, sir, Mrs. Long said. You see Her Majesty's safely taken care of. Well then, the Tsarina said, tucking Merriweather's arm firmly in her own. Let us hurry to Buckingham Palace. You knew, Balfour said. This isn't coincidence. You knew the Queen was going to be attacked. The Tsarina's mouth formed a distressed moo. Of course I did. And when? But if I had warned you before it happened, you'd have had no reason to help me with my problem, she said peevishly. I came as soon as I could, practically speaking. Balfour and Merriweather met each other's eyes for a moment, a silent communication passing between them. Malaise, eh? Balfour said. And Merriweather's laughter surprised and confused all the others in the room. The carriage ride through the icy streets was as swift as could be managed. Lord Carmichael's driver knew all the fastest streets and alleys, and the team of horses was among the best in the empire. But the hand of nature could not be kept back. The falling snow thickened until at last they seemed to be driving through a dim, fairy landscape, only distantly related to the solid, coal-smudged London they knew. Lord Carmichael stared out the window as if his focused will alone could clear their path. By contrast, the Tsarina seemed politely amused. The guards who greeted the carriage were unfamiliar to Balfour and Merriweather, but it was clear from the alacrity with which they led the unlikely party within that the presence of Lord Carmichael was evidence enough of their status. The Tsarina's outlandish appearance provoked no comment. The Queen's private physician was a serious man at the beginning of his third decade. His mutton-chop whiskers gave him an air of age and authority undermined by the trembling of his hands and the thinness of his lips. The private sitting-room seemed gloomier and colder even than the weather outside, the gold and vermilion of the wallpaper dimmed by soot from the smoking fireplace. Sofas, divans and small tables covered the floor like travellers huddled together on a train platform. The glowing gas sconces pressed ineffectually at the shadows. No one removed their coats, nor did the servants inquire. "'She certainly can't be moved,' the physician said, fumbling with the porcelain pipe. "'Not yet.' Not for some time, I should think. No, indeed. Has she regained consciousness, then? Lord Carmichael demanded. Yes, in a sense. What sense? Balfour asked. The physician blinked, at a loss for word. Merriweather took the man's pipe from his hand, packing the bowl with fresh tobacco as he spoke. You say she has regained consciousness in a sense. It follows, my good man, that there is also a sense in which she has not. Such comments are certainly evocative but not in the strictest sense useful. Would you please elaborate as to Her Majesty's condition? He handed back the pipe. The young physician accepted it. When I was called to her, the Queen was quite pale, he said, her pulse rapid, and she complained of dizziness. When she attempted to stand, she fell into a faint. Smelling salts did not revive her. She has since woken, but she seems confused. Keeps talking about someone named Arthur Dodgy. Artia Dodgy, the Tsarina said. For the first time, her voice held no mischief. "'You know the name?' the physician asked. "'Afghan bogeyman,' Balfour said. "'Scares children.' "'It seems it may do a great deal more than that,' the Tsarina said. Lord Carmichael hoisted an eyebrow, and then, seeing that none of the others shared his amusement at the Tsarina's superstitions, grew sombre. Balfour stepped away from the fire, glowering at the walls, his broad nose twitching like a hound's. Merriweather, noting his companion's behaviour, narrowed his eyes. "'Was this the room in which the incident occurred?' he asked. "'It is,' Lord Carmichael said. "'Her Majesty had taken a private audience with a member of the diplomatic service about whom, no offence to the Tsarina, I cannot speak. She asked to be left alone. A few minutes later her private guard heard her cry out. He entered the sitting-room to find Her Majesty in distress. He described the shadows reaching out from the corners of the room, there was a man as well, pale-faced and dressed in dark robes. The Queen cried out a second time, and the man turned toward the guard. His eyes were bright red, and he spoke in a strange language. A terrible weakness came over the man, 
but he managed to interpose himself between the attacker and Her Majesty. Merriweather crouched down beside the fireplace. Grey smoke puffed out above him, evidence of a poorly drawing flu. As he ran a long, dainty finger through the fallen ash, behind him Balfour pressed a palm to the wallpaper four times in succession, pulling it away slowly. And what became of the dark-robed, red-eyed gentleman? Merriweather asked, without looking up from the flames. Lord Carmichael glanced at the Tsarina, clearly discomfited by the prospect of speaking candidly in her presence, and then, with a sigh, vanished. There one moment, gone the next. This is the beast that attacked my husband, the Tsarina said. It is associated with a Mohammedan wizard, travels under the name Abdul Hassan. I have been following him. Merriweather rose from the fire, wiped his hands, and exchanged a meaningful glance with his companion. As if in answer, Balfour raised his palms. Behind him, the door swung open, and an eerie figure lurched into the room. Thin white hair rose from the pale scalp like steam. Gnarled hands gripped a rough firewood cudgel. The pale blue eyes, starting from the broad, doughy face, were empty of all thought. The diaphanous gown gave glimpses of a time-ravaged body rolls of pale fat draping and shifting with every movement. The voice was low and bestial, and filled with a terrible conviction. "'It cannot be one,' the Queen growled, stepping further into the room. "'It cannot be one. We will be destroyed.' "'My Queen,' the physician cried, "'you ought not to be out of bed. You must—' "'It cannot be one.' The firewood cudgel swung through the air with a hiss. The physician fell back, his pipe shattered and blood pouring from his abused lip. Balfour leapt forward, his broad hands clasping the Queen's improvised weapon. A royal ankle took him in the groin, and he fell back as Victoria, Queen of England and Empress of India, waved her club in the air with the conviction and ill intent of a Whitechapel brawler. Merriweather and Lord Carmichael only found time to exchange a helpless glance before she turned against them. Merriweather blocked the first blow with the blade of his hand, leaping back before the second could do damage to his ribs. Lord Carmichael tried to circle behind her, only to have her whirl upon him, teeth bared and spittle dripping from her lips. She lurched toward him, coming near the open flame as she did. All the men present shared the terrible fear that the Queen's nightgown might drift into the fire and set the Sovereign alight. "'Stop this childishness at once!' the Tsarina's voice was sharp as a slap. Victoria turned toward her, watery blue eyes narrowed and cunning. With a visible effort the Queen found words. "'Who are you?' "'An empress, cousin,' the Tsarina said, much like yourself. "'An empress,' the Queen said, as if struggling to recall what the syllables meant, like myself. For a moment the fear and violence dimmed in the pale blue eyes. The gaping mouth narrowed to a prim and disapproving scowl. Her spine straightened, and she considered the Tsarina with a haughty lift of the brow. "'We do not feel entirely ourself,' Victoria announced, and turned her back to the assembled company— pausing only to hand her firewood weapon to Balfour, still red-faced and bent double. The door closed behind her, and for a moment no one spoke. "'I should be certain that she—' the physician began, limping after his patient with blood smearing his lip. "'Is he like this as well?' Merriweather asked, his voice gentle as warm flannel. The Tsarina sat upon an embroidered chair, her fingers laced together on one leather-clad knee. Her face was a blank. A single tear escaped her left eye, tracking down her cheek. Only sometimes, she said, there are whole days when he seems nearly himself. And then it comes again, and... Balfour lifted himself up with a groan and tossed the Queen's improvised cudgel on the fire. Sparks rose like fireflies and died away. He put a wide, comforting hand on the Tsarina's shoulder, and her head sank. For the first time, Merriweather considered that the adventuress might truly love her husband. Lord Carmichael, he said, we are in desperate times. I am very much afraid we shall need to close the ports. Which port did you have in mind? All of them, Merriweather said. Britain is the heart of the world, but thankfully she is also an island. This wizard must not be permitted to escape, whatever it costs us in trade. We have it in our power to prevent him, and we must employ it. The threat we face is not only to our own empire, but to the existence of monarchy itself. No price is too high. We will find him. Unless the bastard can call up a jinny to fly him back to hell, Balfour said. Well, yes, Merriweather agreed. Unless that. Chapter 2 
players of the great game. You said that your husband was attacked in his rooms, Sarina, Merriweather said. Am I to take it that said rooms were in Moscow? I don't believe I was specific, she said with a smile. No, of course, I understand. Do you? He was in Kabul. The Tsarina's jewel-bright, jewel-hard eyes glittered in the firelight, but she said nothing. With the King Street flat still suffering from the Tsarina's arrival, the three had repaired to the private rooms of the Bastion Club, where Balfour and Merriweather had a history of eccentric guests. The servants had seen them to the leather-upholstered chairs and roaring fire, brought them hot tea, and retreated to genteelly spread the word among the other members that any conversations affecting the Empire's conflicts with the Tsar of the Russias ought to be postponed. It was just that discretion that made the club home to the finest minds of political Europe. Lord Carmichael had left immediately to set in motion the great mechanism that was Scotland Yard, armed with the name Abdul Hassan, and a few telling details provided by the Tsarina, aged appearance, a missing eye-tooth, a looping tattoo in Arabic script along his back. Balfour paced the edges of the room like a caged tiger, his hand never far from his knives, his gaze constantly on the woman. Merriweather sat near the fire as if the winter storm growing outside were a pleasant spring day, the Tsarina a friendly acquaintance come over for tea, and the Queen of England in her right mind. And now we seek a Mohammedan wizard who has been invoking Artyadaji, Merriweather said, hardly the sort of thing one finds among the Muscovites. Men say many things. A claim is not the truth, the Tsarina said. You recall the French poisoner who presented himself as a traveller from the future. Yes, well, that was a bit more complex than public reports let on, but this wizard of yours, pretender or not, unquestionably has ties to the Afghan territories. Opium, Balfour said. The resin was on the walls. And the ash in that infernal smoking fireplace, Merriweather said. Whatever magic our wizard has employed, it relies on Afghan poppy for its effect. Without intending offence, Your Majesty, your husband's influence in the region is considerably less than it once was, which would make the decision to begin a campaign by attacking him rather odd. Unless, of course, he presented a particularly convenient target. It follows, then, that there have been some... negotiations. Bloody Russians trying to cut off our route to India, Balfour snapped. Again! The Tsarina stretched, a joint in her spine cracked, and as if in answer, the pine in the fireplace popped. Would you like me to deny it? she asked with a deep throaty laugh. Of course, my empire has been exploring what options and strategies are available to it, much as yours has. You may as well pretend outrage that the sun sets. And your explorations have met with such success that your husband felt it wise to attend to it personally, Merriweather said. That sounds very much as if the recent hostilities might take new fire. That was the hope, the Serena said. Instead, he touched off this. What can you tell us of these negotiations? Very little, I'm afraid. My husband does not always trust me. It's something of a game between us. I do not believe the meeting was cheese for the mousetrap. His allies were quite sincere in their hatred of Britain. But a third party intruded. Your wizard, Balfour said. We forget, I think, that being primitive is not the same as being simple, the Serena said. There are as many intrigues in their caves and tents as in our palaces. And yes, Abdul Hassan enchanted the Tsar. I was called in on the instant. At first we assumed you were behind it. The locals swore otherwise. And then I found a workshop in the poorest quarters of Kabul, a den of dark magic, and notes outlining the attack upon your queen. And you let it happen. Balfour said. Consider my position. My options were to track the wizard alone and in the den of my enemy, or with the best and most capable allies in the world, and with the force of the British Empire. Besides which, should we fail, we will both be hobbled by compromised monarchs rather than Russia suffering that fate alone, Merriweather said. Deplore me if you wish, the Tsarina said, and sipped her tea. Done, Balfour said. A soft knock came at the door and Lord Carmichael stepped in. His cheeks were ruddy from the cold, and snow still clung, melting to his coat. His grin was feral. we found him, boys. The bastard's taken a room behind a slaughterhouse not fifteen minutes from here. Arrived just when the Empress here said he would have. Missing eye-tooth. What's more, when we knocked up the landlord, he said he suspected his new tenant was an opium fiend. Said he stinks of the stuff. 
I've got a dozen men watching the place right now. Well then, Merriweather said, rising to his feet, let us go and make our call. It was nearly midnight when they arrived in the street outside Jenkins Brothers' meets. The snow was thick on the cobbles and grey with coal ash. Cold bit at their skin, and the air was rich with the reek of manure and old blood. Lord Carmichael pressed a brass key into Balfour's hand, nodding at the slaughterhouse door. The room's in the back, he said, caretaker's quarters. Fastest way in's through the front here, past the counter, and through the killing floor. Take the hall on the right. Charming, Balfour said, slipping the key into his pocket and drawing out a pair of well-balanced knives. Merriweather checked his paired service revolvers, the mechanisms clicking softly in the snow-quiet street. The Serena took her own gun from her hip, adjusted the complex mechanism at the butt, and then took a second pistol from the small of her back and loaded three cartridges into it. Her fingernails were blue with the cold, but she made no complaint. "'Would you consider remaining with Lord Carmichael, Your Highness?' Merriweather asked. "'No. I thought not. The front rooms of the slaughterhouse were cramped. From the ink-stained wood of the counter and the handwritten notices of price, it might have been almost any business.' In near-perfect darkness the trio crept, silent as cats. The door to the killing floor was unlocked, its hinges well-oiled. Within, the room was colder even than the street outside. Blocks of ice stood stacked against the wall, and sawdust soupy with gore covered the floor. In the dim light that spilled in through the high windows, the skinless things hanging from hooks might have been anything, beef or rabbits or men. Even in the cold, the reek was overwhelming. A rat scuttled along the wall, startled by its unexpected guests. By unspoken agreement, Balfour took the lead, his wide frame moving through the shadows with the agility of long practice. The others followed only a few steps behind, Merriweather dividing his awareness between the dark spaces behind them and the snake-smooth motion of the Sarina, prepared for surprise attack from either quarter. It seemed hours that they negotiated the abattoir, the dead around them like the trees of an infernal forest, and then Balfour made a low clicking sound at the back of his throat. Merriweather went still, and a moment later the Serena as well. Balfour opened the door slowly, a dim, dirty light outlining its frame. From the hallway beyond a faint voice came. The syllables were incomprehensible, but they had a wetness and roughness that spoke of a throat abused from long use, hoarse as a man accustomed to screaming. Balfour lifted his head, sniffing at the air, and a moment later the others caught it as well. The sweet, pungent scent of opium, but also something else, something deeper and more intimate, even than the spilled blood through which they had travelled. The Serena's long, slow exhalation reminded Merriweather to breathe as well. Her eyes, the brown-gone slate grey in the dim light, were fearful and reckless at once. She saw the question in his expression and nodded once. She was prepared. Quiet as thieves, they crept forward. At the end of the hall, light spilled from the edges of a poorly fit door. Red and gold, it danced like flame. But there was no roar of fire to accompany it, only the rough, ruined voice lifted in its incomprehensible chant. Balfour crossed to the far side of the door, his drawn blades glittering. The Tsarina placed herself at the door's nearer edge, just as Merriweather moved to the same position. Their bodies collided silently, and Merriweather took a step back to steady himself. A floorboard creaked under his foot. The chanting stopped. Grand, Balfour sighed, and then twisting from the hip, kicked the door open. The lock shattered. The bolt tore free, splintering the wood. All three leapt into the room. What had once been a modest caretaker's residence, a cast-iron stove, a small cot, a single gaslight, had been transformed. The stove's plate was open, the burning coal within heating the air like a furnace and filling the room with demonic light. The ancient, black-robed man kneeling before it could have been drinking at the back of any pub in England. Close-cut white hair frosted his pale scalp. The patchy beginnings of a beard clung like lichen to his loose jowls and wattled neck. His alarmed eyes were the blue of ice at the iris, the sclera a uniform blood-bright red. He shouted, his bared teeth revealing the pale gummed gap of a missing eye-tooth, and threw a handful of dark powder into the flames. Merriweather lifted his revolver toward the man's skull. "'In the name of Victoria, Queen of England, stand down!' he shouted. The dark-robed man rose, 
his arms raised at his sides in a gesture that could have been surrender or a show of fearlessness. At his breast a huge and ornate silver medallion glittered as if with a light of its own. When he spoke it was with the unaccented English of a London native. In the name of Victoria, he said, you have no idea what I have seen and suffered in that name. It has no power over me any longer, God help us both. The three exchanged confused glances. The wizard hoisted the corner of his mouth in an amused smile. His medallion glowed silver in a world of honey gold. There was a ruby set at the centre, red as the old man's eyes. Forgive me, Merriweather said, his revolver still trained at the man's forehead. Abdul Hassan? If you like, son, I've been Abdul Hassan. I've had a dozen names. What does it matter what a man's called? Call him king or cobbler. It's what he does that matters. The heat of the fire redoubled, the flames licking at the black iron. You have injured my husband, the Tsarina said. You will tell me now how to cure him. Balfour, Merriweather said. I see it, Balfour replied. At the edges of the room the shadows were growing solid. Darkness made its web. It's the smoke fumes. I believe that it isn't, Merriweather said. You will tell me how to cure him, the Tsarina shrieked, and her pistol barked twice. The black robe bucked and puckered as the rounds pierced it. The wizard chuckled. You'll find me a harder man to kill than that, he said, and the shadows swept down around him, moving through the air like ink dripped into water. There were eyes in that darkness, shining like black water, searching for them. Merriweather felt the hairs on his neck and arms standing, too, his deep animal nature recognising something that had threatened him since before evolution had brought men to walk upright. Something detonated soundlessly, and the iron stove gone, the caretaker's room gone, and rising behind the ancient man, a huge goat-headed thing, its pendulous belly shifted as it shuddered from one awkward bent leg to another. Its eyes were malefic and intelligent. Artyadaji, the Tsarina breathed. Merriweather, Balfour said, and there was a barely controlled panic in his voice. I suspect we've been exposed to some sort of hallucinatory agent. That'd be good, Balfour said. His voice echoed, as if coming from a great distance away. Merriweather took careful aim at the beast shuddering before him. A huge, honey-coloured moon was rising over its shoulder. His service pistol barked in his hand, and the demonic face rippled like a reflection in a pond when a stone has been dropped into it. Stop that, the Tsarina said, and the world smelled of her clove perfume and the richness of her flesh. You could have killed me. Get on the floor, Balfour wheezed. With his head pressed to the filthy floorboards, Merriweather's mind slowly cleared. A greenish haze poured up from the iron stove, floating about three feet above the floor, venomous and threatening, a calm and poisoned ocean seen from beneath the waves. Of the ancient man there was no sign. Stay low, Merriweather said. We have to get to the street, and quickly. When they had reached the curb again, their clothing ruined by the return trip through the frigid gore of the slaughterhouse, Lord Carmichael had a carriage waiting. Wrapped in woollen blankets, the three were pulled quickly through the night streets. We saw him slip out, Lord Carmichael said. Leapt off the rooftop. I've got men in pursuit. I was about to send a squad in when you three stumbled out. What happened in there? Hell opened, Balfour said. The Tsarina leaned her head against the rattling side of the carriage and wept silently. It's well you didn't send any others in, Merriweather said, especially not men who were armed. We'd all have been shooting one another down as devils until morning. Slowly, the opium had done something unpleasant to his ability to find words. Merriweather recounted the events from within the slaughterhouse. Lord Carmichael listened, his eyes wide and his expression the rapt fascination of a boy sitting at a campfire, regaled with ghost stories. When Merriweather came to the end, Lord Carmichael slapped his back, grinning. Well, this is all to the good, then, isn't it? We may not have caught the bastard, but at least we know it's all drugs and mesmerism. Not real magic at all. I'm afraid we don't know that, Merriweather said. You recognised him too? Balfour asked, his bare deep growl, softer than usual. I did, Merriweather said. The carriage lurched, the team of horses whuffling in complaint. Our so-called Abdul Hassan is, in fact, an Englishman. Scott, born in England of Scottish descent, Merriweather said, giving half the point. I've never met the man, but I'm quite familiar with his portrait, William Bryden. 
I don't know the name, said the Tsarina, her attention suddenly sharp and bright as a blade's edge. Assistant surgeon in the East India Company. When Elphinstone retreated from Kabul to Jalalabad, he had an army of forty-five hundred men. Only one man reached safety, and that was William Bryden. Elphinstone? No, you must be mistaken. This can't be the same man. That was... Yes, I know, Merriweather said. That was our first adventure among the Afghans, over four decades ago. The man would be in his sixties, Lord Carmichael said. Seventies, Balfour said, except that he died at sixty-two. Ah, Lord Carmichael said. Yes, said Merriweather. So we can't entirely rule out magic just yet. Chapter 3. Remnants of an Army Dawn came behind a veil of low grey cloud. The difference between darkness and day was only a greater wealth of detail in the worn faces and cold stone. The traffic thickened the streets, horses and carriages battling the night's snowfall. The young man in Lord Carmichael's offices looked at the great brass globe and the citations from the Queen as if he expected to wake from it all. Balfour smiled at him and extended a cup of rich-smelling smoky tea. Samuel Bryden hesitated, ran a hand through hair still disarranged from the pillow, and accepted the cup. The men around him, men only, for the Tsarina was elsewhere, preparing her part of the endeavour, waited patiently for the boy to answer the question. No, I'm quite sure Granz is dead. I was at his funeral. I remember it because it was on my tenth birthday, he said. Funny, isn't it, how we're such selfish beasts when we're young. Mum lost her father, and all I could think was that it wasn't fair I couldn't have my cake. Really, though, you should ask her about it. She'll know more than I do. Merriweather smiled, trying to keep the anxiety presently shaking him from affecting his demeanour. Alas, Westfield is a bit too long a journey for us at the moment. Time is of the essence and all that sort of thing. You have, I take it, had no visitations from your grandfather. Dreams or visions, perhaps. The young man laughed, and then seeing the grim faces of the men around him, sobered. No, nothing like that. Is this actually important? Deadly so, I'm afraid. Did you know your grandfather well? Well enough, I suppose. He seemed a decent sort of man. Prone to dark times, of course. Anyone would be who'd been through what he had. In the war, I mean. Did he talk about Afghanistan often? Lord Carmichael asked, smiling encouragement. Not as such, no, the boy said. He'd go back there every few years. Had friends there, he said. And he was very down on war in general. When Pa asked for my mother's hand... The only condition was that Pa couldn't take a career with the military. That's so, Balfour rumbled. He'd be damned upset with me, I'm sure, the boy said with a laugh. Joined up, Balfour said. Haven't yet, but I'm going to. Clarking hasn't exactly worked out, you could say. The secretary knocked gently at the door and leaned in to catch Lord Carmichael's eye. Your appointment with the inspector has been postponed, sir, he said. It was a code phrase. The time was right to move in. Lord Carmichael nodded and plucked the drawing from his waistcoat pocket. He considered it carefully, then held it out to the boy. Have you ever seen a medallion of this sort among your family's possessions? The boy hesitated, frowned, and then slowly shook his head. No, sir, he said. Balfour leaned toward him. Atyadaji, he said. Mean anything to you? No. Should it? Someone may approach you claiming some relationship to your grandfather, Merriweather said. He may particularly be haunting places that your grandfather may have known within London or its surroundings. If any such man approaches you, you must let us know immediately. He is quite dangerous. Is he? the boy squeaked. Yes, Merriweather replied. But don't be too concerned. We are certain to have him captured by nightfall. He paused, then in a lower voice. We have a trap in place. Well, that... that's good, then, the boy said. Something a bit queer about having one's dead grandfather about, isn't there? Thank you for coming in, Mr. Bryden, Lord Carmichael said, and I apologise again for the abrupt manner of our arrival. The boy rose, setting the cup of tea on the table with a clink, and then wiping his hands on his trousers. For a moment his eyes flickered toward the drawing of the silver medallion. No harm done, he said. Sorry I couldn't help more. Lord Carmichael ushered him to the door, a hand on the boy's shoulder. Not at all. You've been a great help. I'll have a man see you home right away. The door closed behind the boy with a soft click. Balfour rose, scowling out the window, at the street below. Merriweather sighed and stretched, his spine letting off a small volley. Not a particularly good liar, is he? Lord Carmichael said. No, said Merriweather. 
and his failure to dissemble is entirely to our advantage, I think. The rear door swung open and the Sirena appeared, with her leathers replaced by a simple cotton dress, her feet covered with simple working-class footwear, and her hair let down in bangs that almost covered her remarkable eyes. She might have been a young woman of London. She smiled at Lord Carmichael's reaction and made a small curtsy. Not too bad, I hope, my lords, she said in an accent that would have passed for local. Disturbingly brilliant, Lord Carmichael said. The boy is on his way, Merriweather said. He was, as we'd hoped, hiding something, and I hinted rather broadly that we know much more than we actually do. Once at his home, he will try to contact our Abdul Hassan. But, having been questioned by yourselves, he shall be discreet, the Tsarina said, pulling a pair of spectacles from her sleeve and propping them on her nose. He will be watching for the dark-coated arm of law, and overlook a pretty young thing like myself. I shall track him to his lair, signalling your men as I go. I am aware of our plan, sir, and I am accustomed to being underestimated. I am sure you are, Merriweather said, appreciating her implicit dig at him. I am off, then, she said. The hunt calls. The door closed behind her, and Balfour spun the great brass globe, the oceans of the world glimmering in the sunlight. His expression was peevish. The hunt calls, he said in an unconvincing falsetto. Hate the way she always says that. Bloody affected. Lord Carmichael leaned against his desk, drew a cigar from the humidor presented him by the Pope, and lit it thoughtfully. I do wonder, boys, he said, what you plan to do once you've found him again. The three of you were thoroughly trounced last night. What's changed? First, we have seen our man in action. He requires flame and his opium powder. Should we deprive him of these, our chances improve at once. Also, we've ascertained that the fumes from those are lighter than air, and he can be defeated by dropping to one's knees. And, and, Lord Carmichael said, Artyadarji is a demon of the night, Merriweather said, tapping at the sketch of the eerie medallion. We'll take him by daylight, when the spirit is weakest, and we offer no quarter. I have the sense that failure now means failure forever. There will be no third opportunity. For three long hours they waited, every tick of the clock an eternity. When at last the Sirena's message came, they leapt to the waiting carriage and sped through the snow-choked streets. The grin behind Balfour's wide moustache promised violence, as did Merriweather's calm. They stopped two streets away, finishing the journey by foot for fear of alerting the prey. The warehouses sat against the grey Thames, ancient timbers blackened by time and soot, Rats watched them pass, black eyes incurious and challenging. The Tsarina stepped out briefly from the mouth of an alleyway, nodded to them and stepped back. Walking casually, they joined her. The building was three stories high, old stone at the water's edge. The voice of the river was a behemoth breathing softly, gentle and deafening at the same time. They're both within, she called into Merriweather's ear. I found a way to the top. We can enter through the roof and work our way down. Merriweather nodded and gestured to Balfour. The Tsarina led them to a narrow space where age and weather had eaten away at the mortar between stones. She pulled off her shoes, tying the laces together and draping them across her shoulders. On toes and fingertips she began scaling the sheer wall. Their path led around the corner and out over the water. Soon the great wooden doors that would have allowed a barge entrance were directly beneath them, crusted with ice and snow. They achieved the rooftop. Forty feet above the alleyway and chill grey flow. A path through the snow marked the Tsarina's previous explorations, and the black wooden trap door, its hinges forced, let them slip inside. The attic space had been used for storage, with little regard to the strength of the beams. Huge cast iron wheels and chains that had once raised cargo now lay rusted and abandoned. The evidence of a generation of pigeons left the air pungent and unpleasant. The Empress of the Russia squatted down pulled back on her shoes, and drew her weapons from beneath her dress. "'How far did you get?' Balfour whispered, pulling wool socks back over blue-toed feet. "'Far enough,' she said. "'Come quickly.' An ancient wooden stairway so narrow Balfour had to turn his shoulders to fit, switched back down into darkness. Silently they descended. The sulphurous stench of cheap coal began to taint the air. The wooden stair widened and gave over to stone. The Tsarina paused on a landing beside a half-open door, holding up her delicate, pale hand, still gripping a pistol. A moment later, they heard it as well. Voices. 
The platform on which they found themselves looked down over a wide expanse of water, where in the busy days of summer a half-dozen barges might stand together. Only a single spare craft stood at anchor, rough and weathered, little better than a raft. The cranes above it seemed to threaten to sink it more than to relieve its burdens, and at the quayside, sitting by a brazier of red and gold coals, the boy Samuel Bryden and the weathered husk of what had in life been William Bryden. Reach the sea much less Gibraltar, the young man said. The coast will be enough, the wizard replied. His voice was deep and resonant and borne down by the weight of ages. If I can reach the coast, I can reach the continent. If I can reach the continent, I can reach the east. There are caves in the Gulco Mountains that no man in the great nations has breached. I will rest there. You don't have to go alone. Balfour touched the Sarina's elbow and nodded toward the armature of a crane that passed over their shadow-dark platform. She traced it with her eyes and nodded. Yes, I must. The lands north of the Jod Valley are no place for us. Not now, and not for generations. The bargain I struck on that deathly road was no betrayal of England. The task I have been called back to accomplish is no treason. Balfour cupped his hands, bracing himself. The Tsarina put her foot on his laced fingers. Quiet as a spring wind, he lifted her up to the armature's edge. Merriweather crept to the platform's edge, judging with narrowed eyes the distance between wizard and boat, boy and man, brazier and black cold water. If you say so, Grands, I do. We see the East as our chessboard. We think the men who live in those dread places are pawns. They aren't. If by this action I have kept the British Empire from a fresh war in those hills, then I will die again as a patriot, and no greater wisdom could ever be offered the Muscovites than to look away from the Afghan tribes. The power that lives there will never win against us, but neither shall it lose. But is there no honour in trying? the boy asked. Merriweather drew his service revolvers. The soft hush of knives unsheathed reached his ears. Is there? It's the honour of ignorance, then. Are the soldiers there so mighty? There was anger in the boy's voice, contempt even. Some are, and some are cowards. Some are men of peace born in the wrong place and time. They are men. That's what I'm saying. And they have their wisdoms as we have ours. It's only our shortness of sight that make us think they don't that they somehow belong to us, like goats. Above wizard and boy, the Tsarina appeared, a light spot in the gloom. William Bryden, or Abdul Hassan, or Atiyadaji, was so wrapped up in his lecture, she might have been no more than a dove. We can spill their blood in our great game, Samuel, but it won't nourish us. We can fight our battles on their field, but... With a shout, the Tsarina leapt from the crane, her arms wide. Had she been another woman... Balfour and Merriweather might have feared for her, but as the wizard's attention snapped upward, they were in motion, racing toward the brazier. The wizard grabbed at his robe. The Tsarina landed on the cold stone, rolling as gracefully as a dancer, and coming up with her pistol at the ready. The old man threw a leather sack onto the fire as the Tsarina fired. Her bullet tore a hank of dark flesh from the wizard's temple, but no blood flowed from it, and he did not fall. Samuel Bryden shrieked. Evil green smoke began to rise from the coals. Merriweather reached the brazier first. It was larger than it had appeared from the platform, thick and black and hot as a stove. He set his shoulder to it, ignoring pain and the smell of burning skin, and pushed. A lungful of the evil gas started him coughing, and where the boat had been, a huge, nacreous beast now rose from the dark water, tentacles slipping against each other in mindless glee. He closed his eyes and pushed. The Tsarina fired again as the wizard rushed at her, a silver dagger in his hand. The bullet blew off part of his neck, but he did not falter. With a single stroke he knocked her from her feet and towered above her, blade high. The silver medallion glowed with its own baleful light, the ruby blazing with a deep internal brightness matching the blood-red eyes. The terrible hiss of steam, hot metal thrown in cold water, failed to distract him. She did not see the thrown knife. It seemed to appear in the wizard's breast from nowhere, splitting the silver medallion and piercing the long still heart. The ruby fell from its setting and shattered on the stone. The wizard let out a sudden despairing cry and collapsed on the ground behind the Tsarina, a desiccated corpse. She struggled to her feet as Balfour stepped close. In the distance, Samuel Bryden fled screaming toward the waiting hands of Scotland Yard. At the water's edge, 
Merriweather retched and held his eyes against the visions that plagued him, his shoulder and neck a single angry scorch mark. Balfour retrieved his blade from the dead man's chest. Well, that ends that, the Serena said. Do you suppose his magics died with him, or are your queen and my husband lost forever? Don't know, he grunted. We'll see. Either way, I owe you my life now. You do. For a moment their gazes rested on each other. Balfour drew his knives in the same moment the Sirena raised her pistol. The bullet grazed his skull, setting his world ringing like a church bell, and his blade bit into the flesh of her arm. Her foot shot forward, taking him in the belly. He fell back, and she retreated. Blood flowed down her side, crimson soaking her dress. Her eyes were bright and mad and insatiable. The hunt calls, she said, then turned, took half a dozen steps, and dove into the icy water. Balfour lay back, his hand pressed to his wounded head. Some time later, a minute, an hour, Merriweather crawled up beside him. They lay on the stone, the chill seeping into their bones. Well, said Balfour. Yes, said Merriweather. You should have shot her when you had the chance. Next time, Merriweather said. Next time. They tell me that after the Bolsheviks rose up, she fought a campaign of assassination and sabotage. I can well believe it, but by the evidence of my own eyes, she lives now in retired leisure in the Denmark of her youth. She, or someone quite like her, with her one can never be certain. I picture her reading of this new Afghan adventure, and thinking of me and of my old friend Balfour. I hear her laughing, if only within the confines of my memory. Nostalgia, is that? Regret? But what is one man's youth against the great spread of history? No, I will drink my tea and turn away from the old days, however much I feel their loss. Instead, I will take comfort in the fact that the great game has ended, with communism devouring the greatness that was the Russian Empire. Britain, however much wounded by the Great War, is left as the only great power in the world. And so it follows that this next Afghan war must necessarily be the final example of its species, with no great enemy glowering at us from across its borders. There will no longer be a call to battle in those barren fields, and the tribes of those ragged hills will at last be granted peace. And welcome back. In the intro for this one, I mentioned how much of a comfort it was to revisit with old friends. Strange, though, how uncomfortable this story's themes are, isn't it? How the cycle of seasons parallel the cycle of history and war. How we may be doomed to continually repeat the wars of our ancestors or our own personal conflicts. The encounter at the end, the parting of ways with violence, is particularly unsettling for me. That there will be a next time, though, well, maybe that's something. A hint of optimism. For those of you who are a fan of these stories and looking for your own next time, well, there aren't any more short stories in the works right now, although of course you can let Daniel know you want more by visiting him at his website, but I've heard tidings of a novella in the work, and I for one can't wait to check it out. Feedback this week is for Yuji Foster's Black Swan, White Swan, read by Abra Staff and Weeb, the story of a young woman suffering from amnesia, or is she? after being rescued from an icy lake by a doctor. The response to this was generally pretty positive. Some people really loved it, while others thought it was just okay. Homespun Runner said, I'm not usually one for a tragic ending, but this was tragedy done right. So knowledgeably musical, too. Great story. Would love to hear her sing. And Max said, To me, this story was about beauty. The characters were sort of side elements. The constant descriptions and counters of white and black, the protagonist's search for color and constantly returning to her white nest, the types of materials in the house, the lake, all have emerged to form together a sort of song, swan song? Ha! <laughs> An ode to beauty which contrasted with the starkness of the protagonist. I got the sense that the female characters in the story were sort of woven together. Just listen to the names. Lydia, Delia, Adele. There was also an interesting discussion of trauma, and especially trauma and character backstories. Check it out on our forum at forum.escapeartist.net. Let us know what you thought of this week's story. 
If you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. We are not an empire, and we rely on your generosity and kindness in the form of donations to pay our authors and keep our podcastle floating from city to city, broadcasting the best in fantasy fiction week after week. If you can't afford to donate, please tell somebody about us or write a review on iTunes. Or if you want to do more, write to your favorite authors and tell them to submit stories to us. Thank you. And hey, if you're one of our paid subscribers, we've got a little something extra for you. Take it away, Graham. It's so easy to be creepy. Hi, this is Graham Dunlop for Pseudopod. Now available to all subscribers. Check your email boxes for an early Christmas gift from Pseudopod. It's the Trio of Terror, three new stories in our ongoing series. It's yours if you're a subscriber or have made a one-time donation of $50 or more since January 1st, 2011, or if you choose to do so in the immediate future. Offer will expire at a future date, just like all of us. Well, some of us. What are you getting? Why, I'm glad you asked. From Grady Hendrix comes The Yellow Curse, in which our self-esteemed and elitist occult investigating gentleman's club, The White Street Society, only pedigrees need apply, delve into the heathen underbelly of Chinatown and uproot madness. Horrific comedy satire with a serrated edge. From Jim Beyer comes The Shooting Way, featuring a further exploration into the horrors of Native American mythology and the schemes of the legendary trickster god, Coyote. From Tim W. Burke comes Nourished by Chaff, We Believe the Glamour, wherein an associate of the forever ambitious Guru Koresh must deal with an old plaything and an even older playmate. And if you're new to Pseudopod, or you've missed the previous stories in these series, Rest easy. Each of these tales is freestanding. And if they pique your interest, please check the website for a page with links to the previous installments. As with the Alphabet Quartet, there'll be a page for comments set up in the Escape Artists forums. And as always, thank you for your support. Pseudopod, we'll leave the lights off for you. Thanks, Graham. Hey, wait, did he say Christmas? Well, yeah, we're running a little behind here at Podcastle, which I think is just the way Pseudopod likes me. Late. But hey, if the Trio of Terror is too dark for you, you'll also be able to receive Mer Lafferty's 12 Days of Christmas, which we did put out right in time just before the holidays, because we at Escape Artists aim to keep Christmas merry in the past, present, and future. Enjoy them. And if you're getting the trio, or if you got the Alphabet Quartet, you should have also received Mer Lafferty's 12 Days of Christmas as well. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. On behalf of all of us at Podcastle, thank you so much for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back next time when Willow Fagan shows us what lies in the interior of Mr. Bumblethorn's coat. Until then... Raise a glass or a pistol to old friends. We'll see you in a week. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Thomas Paine said, We have it in our power to begin the world over again. <laughs>